That's going to lead into it now, obviously. We didn't. I needn't even edit that uh, music in anymore. That, that'll be <laughs> you, you doing it. Sold, sold. Seamless. <laughs> Who could even tell the difference? Exactly. Hello and welcome to Radio Moorpark, the podcast where we discuss analyze, rate, review and ramble about Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time and also fake eyelashes on the weekends <laughs> also that, yes those are the dulcet tones of Stephen Thaddeus Hill okay, and, and uh, that middle name before yeah, well I've been trying it out and uh, the voice that you heard when you first logged on to this was of course uh, column non-dramatic middle name <laughs> It's a long, long middle name. Yeah. <laughs> and no final name either. Just going for like just two names with the first in the middle. Interesting. Yeah. I like and today we are talking Prince. about interesting times. Something we are all living in currently. <laughs> we are indeed. I'm yeah. becoming increasingly aware as to why that's a, why that's such a, a potent curse. Yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense now, particularly. So, um... Interesting time. Steve, what did you to get this one? What are your first impressions? Do you know, I have to say, of all the books that we've read so far, I kind of had a snap, not a snap judgment, but I had a very good idea of how I felt about it. This one, it's quite mixed. It's, um, I feel personally that there's a very interesting topic. The whole, you know, notion of Orientalism is something that's really interesting, but I don't think it's explored as well as it could be in this book. I feel like it's a little bit simplified, but there are interesting things going on. Obviously, and there's other themes as well, but that's the key thing that I latched onto. What about you? What did you think? Yeah, yeah, there, there's a lot about this book I liked, and yet at the same time, I came out of it kind of feeling frustrated at parts. Uh, and I feel part of it is that it's the first rinsewind book that tries to make a uh, you know, big, important point, a cultural critique, that tries to explore deeper themes than beyond just fantasy parody, you know, mm. which was done quite entertainingly in Colour Magic, Life Fantastic, uh, Eric and Sorcery. And this one, as you said, it, it goes into Orientalism, it goes into aging with the silver horde mm. it touches on like on, on uh, the nature of revolution and what's the best for the people with um the uh, the red army it tries to do a lot and i don't know if maybe that's like too ambitious for uh it's like possible. like a rinsewind style book that are usually romps through you know kind of uh, fantasy stereotype theme parks mm. in, in really fun ways it's kind of jarring to uh see attempts at a like important or interesting point being made uh, alongside that. Yeah, it's um, it's. I, I I'm not even certain if it is a case of too ambitious. I just think that it's just it it just touches on these topics. It doesn't it doesn't seem like it's being ambitious at all. It's just kind of saying this is something that exists, you know, or here this is such such a notion. Like for for example, like the whole Orientalism aspect of it. I just feel it more or less devolves into look these people are different than more different than we are. There 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 are some like uh choice scenes that kind of hint at uh the fact that Terry Pratchett might be trying to do a little bit more. 
but it's the way it all comes together I feel like is a little problematic like in particular I find the ending very problematic the fact that like you know uh, the entire focus of this is another culture and uh, the way we view other cultures and obviously in this it's the counterweight empire but for us it's very obviously some kind of mixture of Asia or yeah, Japan, um, yeah China. all that kind of yeah. thing but um the way it ends is problematic because when you get right down to it it's a bunch of uh barbarians who i think more closely associate with our typical white yeah, it's like the white western lad takes what, over yeah and he <laughs> comes in and he's like ending. yeah it's a happy ending he said <laughs> we come in we show you how to have like you know how to live properly and that's it like that's the end they just overthrow the empire it's just like it's a very like in a way, it's a very, it is a very colonial text. Yeah, like. yeah. I, I think that the problem with it is, I, I remember saying in, I think it was Mort, or one of the death episodes, but like the main, the prototypical Pratchett prototypical protagonist being someone who's That's part... That's a tricky one to say. <laughs> well done, well Peter done. Now say it again. <laughs> <laughs> but a prototypical Pratchett protagonist being someone who is apart from a society, but fundamentally part of it. So you mm. have Bimes, who's like, you know, much more cynical uh, about certain things than a lot of the populace like Morbork, but is this person who was, you know, born and bred there and essential to the running of the city. Mm. Granny Weatherwax is something similar, you know, she's kind of essential to the running of Lunkra, and yet her status as a witch sets her aside Absolutely, from other yeah. people. Death, the, being your <laughs> example, he's, you know, essential to all of life, and yet apart from all of life. Mm. And here you have, like, Rincewind and Cohen who aren't Agathians and mm. they are kind of window into this situation and so, that's problematic right yeah, there yeah yeah like I, I thought it, uh, it it what the instant comparisons in my head are like pyramids and small gods that are both about um, non Ankh-Morpork kind of Asian African style uh, fantasy countries but you the protagonist knows Tepic and um, Brother are from those countries so mm. Like I feel like he has to work harder to show them thinking differently than the you know dominant culture in those countries of the conflicts they have where they're you know um, like it isn't so even when Tepic is kind of wondering at how mad uh, the Jelly Baby seems compared to what he's grown up as mm-hmm. it it never feels like it's easy for him or his thought process is easy to say well, this thing is definitely right and this is the way I'm going to do it. You know, he's, he's somewhat conflicted over it. Whereas it really is easy for Rincewind and Cohen because they don't have any, they don't have any ties to the Agatian Empire. Exactly, so they can just yeah. come in, you know, uh, make these critiques and sarcastic comments and jokes about them, uh, about the place and then change it and, you know, whatever. There's mm-hmm. no, they're not attached to it. And it, it sort of feels like they haven't earned the right to critique yeah. it that way, you know? And I think because like the past four or five books have explored such like deep themes like this I feel like to go back into the the Rincewind model of books which as you said is just very much just a romp it feels like as soon as he wrote the word right Rincewind it's like okay so we've got to have a few set pieces it's got to be fun it's got to have like chases and stuff like that but because he has explored deeper themes he wants he throws a bit of that in there as well and the two don't gel very well unfortunately so it's um you know he's, he's trying to have a fun time and there are parts of it that are great like I I always really enjoy the final battle scene when they're oh, uh, the Cohen and the Silver Horde mm-hmm. go up against the samurais and that one the wonderful bit where they're going up against the ninjas but like that's fun show us your best ninja <laughs> that's like that's a lot of fun 
but it doesn't it's it's not a very in-depth portrayal of like you know the uh Agatean empire or any kind of oriental kind of culture it's just here's the standard tropes of like that culture i'm just going to throw them in there for the sake of fun yeah and um, some of that's really funny like i, I love to <laughs> it's probably really offensive i don't really know anything about the nature of sumerus thing and it's kind of cultural yeah. based in japanese <laughs> culture but the like with the bit where they're chasing Rincewind and like it just makes them offhand remark about them eating half of a pagoda yeah. while they're chasing them there's just something so ridiculous about that that's, yeah. uh, that's really funny but you're right it is kind of uh, awkward and, and I feel part of that is that like the the story that he's telling with the Silver Horde is about aging and I think that's and a much better story and things like that Um. And it's like he can sort of resolve that, but he can't resolve the uh, part about them being essentially like colonialists or going over to yeah. the foreign country. Like the idea of that Mr. Savaloy talks about them, you know, that they've done all this stuff, but people just think they're legends and it's also fleeting um, and ephemeral. They'll go, and the book even commentates on it, or commentates comments on it about them you know robbing treasure but having no real use for money and things like that and he's trying to get them to do something that will actually make a lasting difference Mm. and this will be the thing now that they're aging and now that they're staring at a barrel of their own mortality this will be their their legacy and that's all really interesting and in that sense like the idea of them kind of of Cohen and the rest of them sort of winning this war and accepting their responsibility that you know what we're going to stay here and we're going to try and rule this country and see what we do would be quite a like yeah interesting satisfying ending from that point of view but the fact that it's like not their country and they've just gone in yeah, and taken it over not, yeah. complicates a lot more and what's I think what um what throws it as well is that there's this uh, there's this weird kind of have your cake and eat it sort of fetishization of their barbarian lifestyle mm. where there's a lot of jokes about them like raping and pillaging and killing yeah. and there's a kind of like it, it's it's like you know it's really um affectionate and ultimately like they it, you i feel like it never comes out and says oh no they're right teach uh, is wrong but i definitely feel like like it's more complicated than that but it certainly mm. leans more towards like their way of thinking being more effective and ultimately yeah. simpler and better done the civilization he's trying to mm. done he's trying to push on them you know um, and maybe part of that was because perhaps just thinking okay well like obviously the reader is going to be more on the side of Savaloy's values anyway so like you know he can have the horde make jokes about these things and he know, he doesn't have to say this is bad because he knows the reader will already do yeah, this exactly, yeah. but that it ultimately ends up with them kind of going with their course of action and sort of conflating his idea of civilization with like uh, the idea of you know you're going to rule and govern and not just kill people to get out of things it conflates that with the you know backstabbing uh, like cowardly um, duplicitous politics of the Agatian court you know Mm. it's like you can't have one without the other so it kind of creates this false choice where like they're either choosing to uh enter this game of thrones style you know uh, game of like assassinations and political machinations with the hongs tongs fangs and mcsweeney's yeah or they're just going out and being barbarians and killing people and there's nothing in between and you feel like like 
Savaloy never advocates them, you know, uh, using this duplicitousness when he's talking about civilization. But somewhere mm. along the line, the book, the two of them just get conflated, you know. Exactly. It's yeah, like, yeah. This is civilization, and this is what they're rejecting, and, and that that feels sort of I don't know spurious and unsatisfying. Like it, it makes it too easy for them to absolutely. And I think a big part of that is actually using uh, Lord Hong as an antagonist too. I will say we've had we've had a lot of discussions about Terry Pratchett's antagonists, how they're usually not well rounded, you know, they're like very, very shallow. And this is kind of this is the same, but very well realized shallow figure. Like I think he's one of the most uh, impressive and now having said that, I will say I started reading it and I forgot he existed until I came across him, you know. <laughs> if if you were to ask me, I can't I think we were saying the only one who ever sticks out uh, in any of the Terry Pratchett books is um your man from Nightwatch. Carcer. Uh, Carcer. He's the only one who actually I can ever remember because yeah. he's a particularly well. Oh, I, I don't know. I think there's some like Tia Time. Really Sorry, Tia, Tia, yeah. Tia Time is actually, yeah. he's the other one that I think we were mentioning the yeah. last time and he's he's excellent. But yeah, um, well, I, I, we had a lot of criticisms for uh, Lily Wetterox in um, Witch, Witches Abroad. Uh, but I think she's kind of, she's a very interesting antagonist up until, up until, up until uh, she has to face Granny and she's kind of like. No, written um, off yeah. very, and that's something that happens to nearly every single antagonist like they're very interesting up to the point the book decides now you need to be defeated and it's usually quite forced mm-hmm. and I feel like that happens with this as well but um, <laughs> I, I kind of love the way he's, he's defeated because it's just <laughs> pure luck yeah <laughs> and it, the book's done such a good job of portraying him as like perfect and two players got even killed by trying to fight him but he's got to stand up for him and then it's just absolute luck the spell happens at this time and it the uh, canon lands up for him, but I mean, you're right. He is sort of a kind of uh, somewhat bland, other than that, like as mm, a. Mm. Uh, but because he's such like a vindictive, easy to hate kind of uh, antagonist, I think that's why uh, the book is able to get away with what you're saying. That like you know, it's either this way or that way. You can either be a barbarian or do, um, you know, the whole as I said, the whole game of Game of Thrones treachery, like you know, approach. And the book very much makes you want to side with Cohen. Apart from the fact that. Cohen is so in, even in the book, uh, Rinswin des- uh, describes him as like he's a very likable person, and he's very likable. He's very enjoyable to read yeah. about as well. It's just it's a wonderful image. The idea of a bunch of incredibly, incredibly like geriatric like barbarians who are just like it's fantastic. But um, because he's so likable, and Lord Hong is so unlikable, he kind of represents so many things that people like just really, really intensely dislike. And one of my favorite bits is actually. Um, where they're talking about uh, sword making and say, oh, you could practice like about your 60 years, I think it was, mm-hmm. to master the art. And Lord Hong mastered it in something like three weeks. And there's something about that that makes you go, oh, he's he's one of the, he's like that prick in school who never had to study. <laughs> and like, he was just able to do it like just like that. And it doesn't matter how hard you work, he was always better. And like it just it's just irritating. So um, I think that's a big part of why uh, the book is able to just dismiss the more complex aspects of, um, yeah, th- this approach. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But I think it is a pity because it's like, it seems to be offering where you have like Lord Hong and his ilk on one side and a horde on the other and then Mr. Savile is advocating this third way and somewhere along the line his third way just gets um, melded, amalgamated with what Lord Hong represents in, yeah. in kind of like a poisonous... Uh, stagnant, uh, you know, uh, deceitful civilization when it could be a distinct option. I think uh, one thing I do really like about Lord Hong is his uh, his like uh, 
fetishization and ro- like kind of romantic longing for Ang Morpork. Yeah, that's he's just one so thing I like. Bored by the Gate Empire and the um, the uh, how stagnant it is and how easy it is for him to to rise to the top. And uh, like I think that's that's fascinating. But I do think it, it misses a bit of a mark where the the whole the events of the book have been to a certain extent set in motion by Two Flower writing what I did on my holidays, which is this quite innocent account of Ang Morpork. And like, I, 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 that's those bits where Rincewind reads it and then slowly realizes yeah, it's him are excellent. hilarious. Absolutely excellent. And just the idea that this book, what I did on my holidays is this like revolutionary text <laughs> is really funny too. But I, I feel like Lord Hong, it shows as intelligent enough that you think he would read what I did on my holidays and mm-hmm. be thinking, Oh, Ang Morpork actually just sounds like it's this place full of swindlers like Dibbler or, you know, <laughs> drunks in pubs and, you know, and lazy city guards and things like that. That he wouldn't be, you know, that maybe the rest of them, the peasantry or the Red Army or whoever else are reading it and are just so amazed by the fact mm. that it's different than the Gating Empire that that sort of overwhelms uh, any other um, perception of Ang Morpork they're getting from the book. But you feel as if he sets up, he set up as intelligent enough not to yeah he he wouldn't fall for that sort of thing he'd be able to read between the lines and understand it and the fact that um he longs to uh and this is one this is the one thing that i really think the book misses out on is um he longs to uh meet veterinary and play a game of chess with him and i think it would have been excellent if they could find some way to have incorporated that meeting into the book because that would have been a very satisfying ending Mm -hmm. to his arc but uh, unfortunately, it's not to be. But um, yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. I think that like he should have been able to kind of pick up on it. Um, but yeah, or like even if he does and dismisses it, like even if it will be an interesting, like it's like his one romantic blind spot in this otherwise coldly rationally per- rational personality that he reads it and thinks, ah, oh, that fool has got Mank Park wrong. It's this wonderful like <laughs> land of opportunity. It's not the, you know... Uh, drunken cesspit he's 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 writing about mm. even if you have something like him dismissing it but otherwise it's very odd that he's got this idea of like Morpork that pirates the comedy and even to a certain extent that the tragedy you get of reading him as you as the reader knowing how off his view is yeah. and yet you're the whole time you're thinking but like he should know this too because there's this book all about Hank Morpork yeah. that's, that's going around that he's presumably read um, the other thing about Hank Morpork and I was talked about is um Rincewind's nostalgia for it, like when he's in uh, the Gatian Empire and keeps kind of romanticizing it, and and it, again it goes back to it's that like uncomfortable or unsatisfying critique of this country when it's coming from someone who's outside of it, because you have him like unfavorably contrasting with Ang Morpork, and yet every time we're Ang Morpork, we're always talking a shithole. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> and, and there is like lip service to that, where he's like, oh, it may have been bad, but at least they didn't blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And there's something annoying about it, because you see in, in Witches Abroad, it's a wonderfully done, where Granny uh, is quite xenophobic and closed-minded, and it's like, oh, this isn't like at home. Uh, but the book and the narration and the other characters are constantly kind of undercutting the authority of her, mm. you know, eulogies about Lankra compared to these uh, dangerous foreign parts. Like, you know, it's constantly kind of poking at like, yeah, this is really silly what she's saying. And, yeah, like, it yeah. actually doesn't hold, you know, it doesn't hold up. Whereas you don't really get that with what when Rincewind's reminiscent about Ang Morpork. Mm. You know, like the most you get is him saying like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe it's kind of bad, but it's a whole lot better than here. Yeah. But you don't get you know, the same sort of, um, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but, um, 
I do think the scene where uh, he he comes back to Ankh-Morpork after he was on the desert island is a very kind of cathartic scene where yeah. he's going around in like almost a uh, trance like eating uh, Dibbler sausages and getting mugged and enjoying it and oh stuff yeah like that. Th- those parts are like it's, it's maybe when he gets to the again, you know, yeah, yeah. and starts like saying oh Ankh-Morpork's so wonderful compared to here that. yeah if, but yeah, that's that, and and it does like read them in order. It does kind of feel epic because it's like wow, mm. this is the first incident book in ages, and yeah, he hasn't been to Ank- back to Ankh Morpork since sorcery. You it's, know? Yeah, it's, it's a, a very it's a very satisfying thing for him to come back there, and you're almost like you you could actually you kind of feel the. Um, downtrodden by the fact that you know he's going to be sent off again like you, you, you kind of wish that he, he actually would get a break it's like one of those times where you're really like give the give the chap a little bit of a rest but um, yeah. but uh, yeah that's just that's how it is it's um, it's bizarre uh, yeah I'm trying to think um, one thing that I found very interesting in this book is there's a big focus on Hex and how it's becoming, um, mm-hmm. you know, a more sentient thing, and it doesn't really go anywhere. But it's just interesting that it spends like it has so many moments where it's talking about, oh, there was a, there's a, what was it, wind chimes that were there, like that wasn't there last night, mm-hmm. but now for some reason it's essential. And um, funnily enough, I kind of I found myself thinking of like you know typical Microsoft software like updates and stuff you know like you're getting constant updates yeah. you know the whole time and like you're not really certain what exactly it's doing if you're not tech savvy all you know that is if you don't do it your computer for some reason isn't going to perform as well and like it's it's interesting like so he's, I think he's making a very again this is just a very slight commentary it doesn't really go anywhere but I do think it's interesting but the whole idea of um, you know technology or maybe an artificial AI becoming more intelligent and I think this was, I think this was early 90s. So I think that fear, like and if it's approaching Y2K, mm-hmm. you know, as well, it might have like, a, there's a tinge of that fear of uh, technology us becoming too overly reliant on it and what will happen if it's all just taken away. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's like not really understanding how, how it works to a mm-hmm. certain extent, just letting it tick along itself. Um, yeah, I think like you mentioned Hex bit in soul music and it certainly comes in in a big way in Hogfather. So I feel as if mm-hmm. this is one of those things where, you know, the idea occurs to him and he's sort of chipping away at saying, yeah. oh, there's, I know there's something, there's it something just, good here to use. I mean, I think the wizards in general here are really good. Like, yeah. uh, they're just really funny as ever. <laughs> Reed Cully's meeting with um, Veterinary, who is the great wizard? Uh, the Dean, I suppose. He must be at least 20 stone. <laughs> In this context, I believe great means superior. Definitely not, not the, the dean. dean. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very good there now. And actually, I do really enjoy the callbacks to sorcery at this point. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is, is it actually this one? Yeah, yeah, where yeah. they talk about, um, allude to the fact that they all pretend they weren't around. When yeah, since I was away at like my aunt's or such, such a thing. And like it does fe- really feel that now uh, Unseen University is becoming really cohesive. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, in the early books, like it's just kind of like all the arch chancellors were very much interplaceable and you know none of the senior wizards really had a personality they were all again all like the burser has changed completely obviously now from the early days when he was just a regular character and now he's just this bizarre almost kind of i kind of read him as a bit of a stoner now at this point you know <laughs> so he's just kind of he doesn't really know what's going on but like you know he's quite likable and it's just he's grand yeah yeah um, but yeah i find the hex bit it's it's very I really enjoy it when it's there and I love reading about it 
it just it doesn't I don't see any kind of correlation between it and the other themes that are explored in the text mm-hmm. it's just a very odd placement here it's fine it's good like um, I'm not saying that it really badly affects the book because it's not so it's it doesn't intrude very much on the other plot it's just there and I just think it's it's just odd that it doesn't really interlink with the others very well the one thing I think it does do for for, for the plot other just like be fun and so on is that because they, they talk about the difficulty of getting Rincewind there and then Ponder insisting and do it with Hex and they're all really unsure and so on is it really adds to the idea that like magic is hard work and it can't do everything you might think it might mm. which adds to the ridiculousness of Rincewind as this great wizard figure who will torn, you know who will be able to um, like topple the pillars of power in the country like not only do we know he's such a useless wizard anyway but it's like even if he is competent you would yeah it wouldn't be enough um, and the fact that it's I think it's sort of necessary when you have the wizards involved but they're not going to be really playing a big role in the plot mm. to emphasize that like yeah there are limits to their powers and you know so essentially so the reader isn't expecting them to intervene in some way while Rincewind's over there in the counter continent you know mm-hmm. but setting up so they're getting this machine to send them over and they don't really know how it works and uh, they're just going to see what happens yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's very odd now alright um Cassie, what do you think of uh, just going back to the Orientalism for a little bit? Like, what do you think of the idea of this being a postmodern e- examination of Orientalism? How so? Well, I mean, do you think it would work uh, in like? Do you think it would work if you were to kind of uh, examine it as Terry Pratchett is very much aware that he can't make much of a commentary on Orientalism? And that he's just like saying, yeah, I'm just poking fun at the fact that I can't say anything about this except look how different it is like to my own culture. Um, I feel like there's one one bit that I think really reinforces that is where um, uh, Rincewind is trying to order or he's talking about like a typical Agatean uh, food item and he says, oh, meal A with uh, extra... Oh, yeah, I can't remember yeah, what, exactly yeah. what it is, but something from like a Chinese takeaway. And like, yeah, that actually kind of perfectly summarizes like someone's general attitude t- towards the Orient. It's like, oh yeah, I'm very knowledgeable about the Orient. I love this food um, spice bag that they have there or something like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. The, then the idea that like the kind of culture mm. we get in, in the West from uh, particularly cuisine-wise from... Asia is often a sort of compromise to meet Western taste, but then we assume, oh, this is like Indian takeaways, Chinese takeaways, just the food the people eat over there, and it's <laughs> not like that at all. Um, yeah, like there's, I mean, with Pratchett, like he's such a self-aware writer, there's always that dare to a certain extent. But in the same way, like we're critiquing the fact that Rincewind makes these like contrasts between like, Eighteen Empire and like Moorpark without the book really undercutting mm. his you know, his bias in the fact, the same way that Cohen just, uh, his barbarism is sort of proved to be like better than whatever's in uh, the Gating Empire. I do think there's a, a kind of like lack of awareness in some areas, certainly when I compare this to, yeah. and it's, it's jumping ahead a bit because we, we're doing another few episodes, but like I feel Jingo is much more, Jingo like, does yeah. a really good job of sending up the, the ways, the ways in which we can kind of construct, like, construct an Asian other like that great conversation with mm-hmm. Colin and Nobby where within a few spaces Colin has both denounced the uh, Clatchians as really cowardly but also these fearsome savages yeah. and Nobby's <laughs> like oh so they're running towards a screaming while they're running away from you know our cold <laughs> steel and things like that um, 
and when uh, what's his name 71 hour Ahmed has a conversation with Vimes about how Vimes is more likely to suspect people from Mac Morpork because Mm. even though he's more suspicious of them in a way it's a sort of bias because it's like even if he thinks they're worse he also thinks they're better at being worse yeah yeah. (laughs) Um, like stuff like that I feel is much more um, nuanced and self aware about questioning like how we and when I say like I mean these people will be this is saying like oh we whatever the uh, rinses from like Morpork the horde are from wherever the, the hub or somewhere yeah. that isn't we're from Ireland or you know the UK US uh, Argentina wherever you're listening to this um, but like we're clearly meant to identify with the people from uh, like w- with them not only is like Morpork culture like a lot closer to like particularly like UK and uh, Irish city life I was joking about like Dublin being at Moorpark with the Liffey being Yank and yeah. the, the kind of like the north south posh um, rough uh, divide but also because we've like read a load of books where the protagonists are from there and we're like mm. we're being asked to identify with that you know we're seeing it through the char- those characters eyes and perceiving the Agatian as foreign, even if theoretically Ankh-Morpork is just as foreign because none of us have ever been there. Exactly. Yeah. But really, we're, we're identifying that with our, our home. So I feel like you know later books like Jingo are much more uh, aware of how we perceive um, like foreign things and uh, uh, the delusions we have even when we're trying to fight against those illusions yeah Don I, I feel like we have something much simpler here in interesting times you know? absolutely yeah and the thing is like um, I think if uh, if Terry Pratchett wanted to be more self-aware then the likes of Rinswin and Cohen would have a better idea of what to expect in the Agatean Empire whereas they really don't here like they, they're going in and they're constantly like learning new things and Terry Pratchett is presenting that in a very just kind of pole-faced way like he doesn't like you know, you don't have like a little paragraph where Richmond says, "Oh, I've heard they've got these like giant uh, warriors like who wrestle in nappies or something like that." Terry Pratchett just presents that there. Mm-hmm. It's just like this is how it is, you know. And so, yeah, as I said, like there's not there isn't really any self awareness in that. It's just a simple case of this is where it feels very very simply a romp in like a country where look their culture is different to ours. So it's it can be infuriating the fact that he taps onto something and then doesn't really follow through as much in this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, the, the, like the, uh, how do you put it? The, the politics bit of it, I'm, I, I kind of find frustrating too. Mm. Uh, and it's one of these things where like, Pratchett usually like writes with this huge skepticism about the, um, uh, stupidity of and stubbornness of people, particularly when they're following something that's much bigger than them than themselves, and um, it becoming a, an excuse for them just to uh, step aside, you know, step around compassion or mm. uh, self awareness or critical thinking and so on. And when you see that written on a like local personal level, it's very compelling, like the way he writes those uh, those characters. But when you see it on a like nationwide or just like say empire-wide level it feels like it's too big for him to for that line of thinking to extend like it's like i remember when we done small gods and mm-hmm. i said that, like i really liked it but i said the bit that annoys me is when you have didactylus talking to simony's guys and he can't really um roused them in a way that simony wants yeah simony sort of dismissive and i felt like the book is asking us to you know, look askance at Simony and think, why this, 
you know, revolutionary atheists is just as bad as the theocratic oppressors. But I thought, you know, well, maybe he's pretty bad, but also, as far as anyone in the book, Barra Brutta knows at this point, he's the only option they have. Yeah. And I feel like somewhat similarly here with the, the Red Army, when their kind of naivety is constantly mocked. But also, it's like, well, what's what's the other option? Like, you know, yeah. either you let Lord Hong and his lads continue to just run roughshod and it, and it does do a really good job of showing the contempt with which they treat the peasantry and, and mm. the, the people and so on um, or what you wait for someone like Cohen to come along and save you like that bit where Rincewind talks to the lad in the field that's excellent says, I, like, I like that bit now but, yeah, but, uh, see I don't because he says mm. about like you know all the workers would want is someone to build a big library and leave the door open mm. and it's like well who the fuck's going to build that like Lord Hong's not going to build that you yeah, know like yeah. the only way that's going to get built is if like Pretty Butterfly and the rest of the uh, Red Army actually managed mm. to take over. That's the only time this this like library that's going to like improve the lives of the you know workers in this wonderfully holistic, non-idealistic revolution way is going to happen is if they have a revolution because mm. whoever the like Lord Hong or the Emperor in the book isn't going to do that. And the idea of when he goes to this one farmer and is like, "What do you want?" and he says a longer piece of string, and I feel like that's kind of put out there as like, "Ha ha, you see." The, like the Red Army are out there fighting for what they think the workers want but the workers don't even care about that stuff and it's like well that's part of the point like you know mm. they're they're in a society where these farmers and workers are treated like you know dirt by the aristocracy where they're worked to the bone where they're not allowed to see any kind of uh, text that might disagree with their worldview, something like what I did on my holidays so how would they even be able to conceive of like, you know, he's hardly going to go from, like, what do you want? And the farmer's like, the end of the empire. If he's in a, yeah. if he's living in an empire that functions to stop him thinking that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly, of course, yeah. he's... Uh, like, it feels kind of, how would you put it, uh, patriarchal and patronizing. But sometimes for these things to happen, like, the only, the only way is if someone... Take, you know, someone acts on behalf of people who really should be making decisions for themselves, mm. but can't because of the situation. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like if you uh, like again, and it, like it's it's the kind of thinking that I feel like he would never do if you don't on a personal level. Like say, mm. if we bought like if you had two characters where, you know, say two characters are in an abusive relationship, right? And the abused person is so badly treated in a relationship where they they wouldn't even dare conceive of like leaving the you know their husband or boyfriend or whatever it might be yeah. and you have a third character come up and be like oh you look you look really rough what do you want do you want do you want to go like i'll take you away and they, and the abuse character says no you know i feel like terry pratchett would never write a scene where the the third character is like yes you see they don't want anyone to help that's fine i'm going to yeah. leave this as it is until they can figure it out themselves but when it gets to a, a much bigger political level, he's using this as a point of mm. like, you see, these farmers don't even want revolution. And again, it's it's the kind of thing where it's like, well, of course they don't, because they wouldn't. They're not an even a, they're not in a position where they're allowed or encouraged to think about this. So yeah, the Red Army isn't perfect, and like he does a really good and fun job of of uh, taking the piss out of both their naivety and how it hints at how close they would be to being almost as repressive in the way that say like Mao's China or Stalin's Russia were after they yeah. had revolutions and that's a really worthy point to make but it's also like from the vantage point of of now before the revolution before they have got that oppressive mm. they're, your, they're the only option really they're like they're the only you know 
the only uh, realistic option that people in the Gaetian Empire could hope for. Yeah. And there's something that feels kind of unfair and snide and kind of smug about just saying like, yeah, yeah. they're like these, these kids and their political ideals. Yeah, I do agree with you. I think um, you're absolutely right. Like it does, uh, the way it's presented it um, does kind of imply that um, yeah, Rincewind is completely right in saying yes, uh, the, you're, you're completely naive in your ideals and um, it's not as simple as that. But um, I think I think the scene itself is uh, it's kind of it's it's kind of operating more in the vein of like the Rincewind style romp as opposed to the um, you know the deeply uh, I suppose profound thinking man's book in this case mm-hmm. you know it kind of it's hitting the right beats and um, when when uh, Rincewind stumbles across this character and asks him like what do you want as oh, I just want a longer piece of rope or whatever. It's uh, it kind of uh, validates his point that he's saying. It's like yes, of course. Well, it see at the time it seems like it's validating his point, and I think the idea. I think you're right. It's, you're just not supposed to think about the fact that yeah, there's no other option there. You're supposed to say, well, it's a slightly better option, but you know, from the vantage point of that point in the book, yeah, it is just a slightly better option. That's all. Yeah, um, and like, I I like some of the contrast between Rince's cowardly pragmatism and a naive idealism in the Red Army with like them just saying you know oh well fight the, the uh, well fight the Imperial Army and he's like well how you'll just be killed and they, they don't really have a plan like um, and this yeah what is it you can pick up ca- any causes on any street corner you've only got one life yeah um, like some of that I like but it, it, it's, it's I feel like at those points it's just it's sort of it's not really about what they're fighting for it's just about the very idea of these are people who are willing to die and it probably won't make a difference if they do like try and go through with their plans as naive as they are because whatever they'll be killed and things will go on and the likes of Rincewind are okay maybe he's a coward but he's still better off living like mm-hmm. I like that contrast but I feel like when he gets stuck into the farmer and the other bits when he's debating with them about like what they will do when they take over it's it's not about their methods and the possibility of them losing and failing. It's more it's more an idea of oh you even trying to do this in the first place is wrong. You know you mm. have no right to kind of uh, um, decide what's good for this country and take over, even though it's already depicted the country as this horrible repressive regime yeah, yeah. that needs someone to change it. You know, but and it's not- like what what why do the Red Army have less moral authority to do that than? Cohen and whoever and what I find is weird about it and maybe I mean this is maybe not so weird any writer develops is but like a couple of books later we have that wonderful scene in Feet of Clay where Vimes goes to the uh, family of the maid uh, and, and, and they took the candles um, and they're re- and he's doing it as a part of the murder investigation but they're really worried that they're going to be arrested for stealing the candles and Vimes mm-hmm. is this whole thinking that like oh these are people who are so backed down by the system they would always presume that they're in the wrong and that like mm. they would never you know they'll never get out of this like hole this slum they're in um, and that farmer is kind of like that you know he's in like yeah. he's in an even more uh, like uh, like uh, Agadian Empire this, this book shows much more oppressive than Ankh Morpork um, so in the same way that like I, well, I think it's easy it's like Mildred Easy is the maid and her family who Vimes goes to see in the same way that they are not going to kind of, they're going to always presume they're in the wrong. This guy, when Rincewind asks him as if to kind of solve the whole moral conundrum of is there an army or like, what do you want? 
of course he's not going to be able to answer because yeah. he's in this really repressive uh, um, regime. But I feel like that bit uses his answer as a kind of as in uh, like a critique of the Red Army, as if to say this is the man you're fighting for, and he doesn't even want the freedom you want to mm. uh, you say you want to win for him. So like. Therefore, your kind of idea of this workers' revolution is illegitimate. When really, it's like, well, that that regime, like that, he's living in such an oppressive regime where he couldn't even conceive of it anyway. So I don't think I'd agree with you there. Now, actually, like I don't think that the point he's making is that because uh, this man doesn't can't really conceive the same like um, you know uh, rights that you're uh, fighting for that makes uh, your cause illegitimate. I think the point that he's trying to make at that point is just that. A revolution isn't black and white, you know, it is always going to be more complicated, like there's going to be issues that you simply haven't thought of, so issues that, uh, you know, if, if there is an uprising, the new like uh, regime is going to have like its separate set of issues, it might be a better improved regime, but not necessarily perfect in any sense, and like the way the Red Army is like they're very na- naive and saying we're going to fight for the rights of the people and everything's going to be perfect. And I think the whole uh, intention in both of those scenes where Rincewind tells them, like, no, it's not that simple, and, like, saying that to, or talking to the farmer, it's just to highlight the fact that, not that they're illegitimate, and I think because of the tone of the book and, like, the direction it takes, it doesn't make it sound like the Red Army is a, uh, has an illegitimate cause. It's just that, like, it's not that simple. Like, it's just simply not, simply not that simple, you know? It's a... Uh, it's a more complex issue than I think even the book itself is making it out to mm-hmm. be. And so I think that scene is there to highlight that. That was my take on it, man. Yeah, well, I'm, I do, like, I'm probably making too much of the one scene with the, the farmer. And I mean, you're right, I do think it, it makes the, the point, the very legitimate point of like, yeah, revolution is not simple. And these guys, like, I mean, so often uh, oppositional forces can be very naive, but like, oh, just like once we get power, it'll all be grand. Yeah, and, and exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I, I do feel there are bits to the book where, like, it tries to critique the idea of, like, oh, they shouldn't even be trying, you know? Like, that, mm. like really, they're just, like, they could be just as bad. Um, and and I feel that, like, while there obviously are historical parallels there, they're just as bad. Like, um, again, the Empire is very much a China analogue with some Japan thrown in. And if you're looking at the Red Army and compare them to Mao, then it's like, you know, yeah, like, he was bad. But at the same time, it's like, in the world of the book, they haven't taken over and killed tens of millions of people like Mao has and you know there's nothing there's nothing Rincewind or anyone else knows to suggest that they will mm. so while yeah they should tell them this won't be as easy as you think it is the idea of kind of taking apart the idea of oh you don't have any right to fight for these people in the first place you know mm. is feels a bit off to me particularly when ultimately the solution it proposes is like some barbarian will come in and he'll take over with the help of a wizard and dumb luck yeah. Well, I admit now that that's a very fair point to make. The one thing I would say is that I think any time that the Red Army is critiqued for, like, you know, you just shouldn't even be trying, that, um, unless I'm mistaken, I'm pretty sure that always comes from Rincewind. And that is very much part of Rincewind's character. You know, he's a very mm-hmm. critical person. He'll always see the worst in anybody. So I think that's kind of just him along for the ride. Like, he's not obviously not going to say, wow, that's a very noble thing to do. You should fight for that. You know, that's just not something that Rincewind would say, you know, so... Yeah, yeah, it's it's not so much that he, um, like, it, it's when he says it and they kind of don't have a reply to, mm. you know, to him, like, yeah. uh, that it seems to suggest that, okay, yeah, he's Rincewind, he's a coward, but he's kind of right here. Mm. Like, and uh, like it's, it's that 
that bit of it that it's because and it's I don't want to sound too harsh about this because it's very like he's trying to do a lot and it, like I said the critique of the naivete of the Red Army both in their possibilities of victory like um, and Rincewind's pragmatic cowardice there's that there's the contrast of like you know uh, the idea of well you've got to have a plan for after you uh, you know after you take power uh, and critiquing the simplicity of that and that's something but there's also the critique of like their moral authority to even rebel on behalf of the people in the first place and they're all kind of jumbled together and just so occasionally for me just that that leaves a bad taste where I feel like mm. you know uh, I, I don't know there's still something very smug about it it's like the, it, yeah. it goes back to the smog odds thing where I'm sitting there thinking like well none of these lads know that Brutha's gonna end up killing Vorbis uh, or uh, um, and finding this third way so right now these are their only two choices and like in the same way that I got now like Orn and Didactylus being able to be like Simony like oh you're awful because they can just step back off to Aphib like it feels like that with Rincewind here where it's like you know you're critiquing them but they've got to live with this you know at least, like of course they're going to come up with some kind of <laughs> like uh, try and find some way out of it and you know, you you should do more, and the book should do more to respect that than just be like, "Ah, this is dumb." See ya. We're going back to Angmore Fork. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right on that. No, I have to say, like, it just it has a very, it just it, overall, it just seems to have a very flippant attitude in a lot of the themes that it's taking on, and it's the fact that you can you sense that if you, you it, all the issues like in terms of like you know the approach to Orientalism, the this issue with like the politics and revolution. It all could have been explored more and probably been given a more satisfactory like uh, frame mm. framework, but um, yeah, it's the fact that you feel like it's there and it's just out of reach that that can be quite frustrating in the book. All right, yeah. Um, I still think I still think the barbarians taking over is just like even when I was reading it before, I, I had no like when I was a kid reading this, I thought, oh well, no problems with that. The good guys won, simple as. But reading it now, it's like, whoa, this is yeah. so problematic. There now, I, like I love a lot of stuff about how they do it like the yeah. idea of you know well nobody's ever seen the emperor so they can just go in and like and the kind of um how hidebound and ritual driven the whole thing has become that once someone can step outside of that no one really knows what to do you know once, yeah. once they kind of um go in and take everyone at their word when they say i you know i'd rather die than have you as emperor uh, and so on but uh yeah you're right it's it's still <laughs> ultimately they are just like these like foreign uh, invaders even if they're kind of even if they're they're nice guys um yeah it's interesting actually um the I, I like one thing I really like and I would have liked explored more it's a shame that they don't explore it in later books is the idea of trying to civilize uh, the barbarians and I think there's loads of fun to be had with that mm-hmm. um one bit that I find I really don't I'm really on the fence on it I think it's um, what's the name of the oh which which barbarian was the one who swears all the time Truckle uh, Truckle the Uncivil yeah when um, he goes uh, to talk go talk to that woman yeah. and uh, they says oh she wants to meet me later and like wash my beard and all that kind of thing it's I like it and at the same time I just it's because I think just before that uh, he casually talks about like oh yes uh, raping and like uh, going in raping everybody and it's it's problematic reading how like casually that is mentioned mm-hmm. um, but by the same token like that bit is very very fun watching this barbarian like you know chatting to this woman and suddenly becoming like a shy schoolboy when like 
before he was literally a rapist, you know? So yeah, it's, yeah. it's an odd feeling. Like, I feel very at odds with that entire concept because part of me wants to think, oh, well, that's just funny. But it's also kind of indicative of how casually that was a topic that was talked about. Like, uh, yeah, it's something um, that I've also I I rewatched uh, Blazing Saddles recently, and there's a scene in that that's it's again very problematic, where um, they're hiring all the bandits and the thieves and all that. Is it what are your special skills? Uh, it's something like rape, arson, murder, and rape. You said rape twice. I like rape, and everyone bursts out laughing because it's the funniest thing in the entire world. And like. Jesus Christ, that would not fly now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think the thing with the Horde, though, is that I, it's it's part and parcel of them that they talk about killing so casually as mm, well. That's, you know, yeah. And stealing and pillaging. Um, that Like, I think I, I suppose, given recent events, like rape is the one that's going to... That, yeah, that's uh, the hot stick topic. Out, yeah, stick out to us all the more. And as well, because we you know, when we're kind of relating this to our own lives, we don't imagine people talking about killing in such a casual way. True, yeah. But, you know, when you hear raping them really casually, it, it sticks out more, it sticks in the crawl more because you feel like, yeah, there are people who still don't take this seriously mm. enough. But, having, like, the, I don't know, there's something, like, weird he's trying to do where, and, and interesting and ambitious where, like, you know... They have like that balance of their strange kind of charisma and honor with all these horrible things they've done, and even mm. Rincewind muses about it, where he's thinking like, "Oh, I like Cohen, even though you know he'd probably kill you as soon as look at you." And, yeah. Um, you know, getting this balance between the fact that like, "Ah, oh, yeah, these lads are really likable, and it's funny seeing these old men run rings around these younger warriors," but also they they do come from this like really horrible cutthroat lifestyle, and that's what irks me all the more when. You know, like it ultimately seems up for their way of doing things over Mister Savalos because he yeah. he's the one trying to get them away from all that. You know, I suppose trying to essentially harness some of the best of their skills and take away the you know the senseless destruction involved. But ultimately, it's like yeah, he's you know he's trying to make water run uphill. This is going to happen. And I do feel um, like the reason that that it goes for that for it opts for that. Uh, you know, particular course is because it's more fun. Yeah. Like, it makes for a better ending. Like, you know, it'd be, it, I always feel like it would be anticlimactic because, like, you couldn't have, you, you couldn't really have the massive battle outside, that which is a lot of fun to read about, but you couldn't have that if they opt for uh, Mr. Savaloy's way of doing things. So, I think it's just a case of, you know what, this will make a more fun book to read, you know? Yeah. Which yeah. is, again, yeah. it's, it like you said, it's very irksome because you feel like there could have been something done much better there. <laughs> uh, so how do you feel about the whole uh, aspect of legacy and, uh, you know, the way the barbarians are looking to kind of, you know, make something of their lives? Because when you look at what happens after this book to the whole um, The Silver Horde, it really doesn't hold up whatsoever because... Oh, wait, actually, now that I think about it, it kind of does. Um, in isn't it the last the hero? Last hero yeah, yeah. And when they're literally trying to steal fire from the gods, actually, it does kind of hold up because they want to make themselves actual legends. I suppose. Uh, yeah, I I think it's it's one of the more poignant things, and it's a difficult thing to balance with like the Orientalism and the it's the uh, um, barbarism civilization, you know, the kind of fetishization of of, of barbarism and that. But uh, the like quite. For one, all of it to them are like a lot of it's really, really funny. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, 
like just all the the banter between them and Mr. Savaloy and the <laughs> visions of them sneaking in dressed like eunuchs when they fight the, the ninjas and yeah. stuff. So, but the, yeah, the idea of their like them confronting their own mortality is uh, is interesting. And what I love is there's almost a meta textual commentary when Cohen, I think at a point, is mentioning all other barbarians and uh, Thrun, yeah, it? yeah, they're going through and saying like, oh, you know, now he's dead, he's dead. And he mentions Thrun from across from the color of magic, and I think Truckle says that Harun is now a sergeant in the city watch somewhere. Um, so yeah. and Cohen thinks of it in terms of like the the barbarians are like a dying breed, yeah. but this is also like this transition from the early wild disc world of barbarian heroes to the more. modern disc world that where you have to institutions like the watch and uh, the witches and you know unseen university settling down and so on um it's all settled down so that there could be some kind of continuity and there there can be books that you know go back to these things and do them again yeah. which couldn't happen if they were all just these like you know whatever wild barbarians dying yeah, and killing and so on so it's like Ron becoming a sergeant in a watch is this yeah it's a great you know, yeah this like uh, yeah exactly this metaphor for the whole transition to Discworld itself the and the series is is undergoing you know and it's funny because like we've we've talked about this a lot the whole idea of how specifically in the color of magic and the life fantastic where it starts off as a very like barbarians and dragons and all that sort of thing and then it becomes all to like a proto london or something now in the modern day but it's not something that I ever really put words around before I, I was always aware of it when you're reading it because you can see it mm-hmm. happen it's quite obvious I mean books like uh, Going Postal and Making Money are like literally about that you know it's very much about the civilizing of um, this fantasy world but it's just I remember I just think it's really unusual that like words have never been formed on it until we started doing this and I realized it's a process that it goes through it's just um, it is very interesting yeah um, there's a nice parallel too with the uh, with the horde and what we're saying with the uh, Prince Wayne critiquing the Red Army's kind of um, you know suicidal uh, optimism and idealism where they you know, what is a truckle keeps talking about like Bruce Tahoon and oh, you yeah. know when, when uh, Teach and Cohen have them doing kind of you know sneaking into cities like well and Bruce Tahoon went to Alcali he <laughs> went through by the front gate and Cohen's like yeah last time I saw Bruce Tahoon his head was on a spike and outside Alcali <laughs> And he said, yeah, at least it was a spike on the front gate. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a pretty funny running joke about, like, Truckle moaning about the uh, <laughs> things they're doing. But it's also a night parallel where, uh, kind of like Rincewind, Cohen can see, even though he's, you know, obviously a much braver character in Rincewind and much more willing to, like, uh, risk risk his life, He, you know, he still sees... Well, it's sort of like pointless doing something really brave that's going to end up getting you killed anyway. You know, mm. what's what's the point of that? Um, this is why we're, you know, this is why we're sneaking in. Who cares about Bruce Dillon? He's dead now. Yeah. And it's like Rincewind is saying to the army, to the Red Army, you try and fight the guards, you'll be killed. And they're like, oh, we'll die with honor. And it's like, well, what difference is that going to make to anything? You yeah. know? Um, it is kind of a case. I think at one point, Cohen says like uh, something to the effect of, listen, we're just barbarians. This is what we do. And any time that uh, something doesn't really make sense for the Silver Horde to do, it does just basically relate back to that. I feel like it's something, it's a very, it is actually, I think, a very good safety net because it just works. Like, you know, they don't really have logic. They just have a general sense of, like, directioned chaos. It's like, this is what we do. We Mm -hmm. steal things. We 
lose the loot that we have and we like fighting and you know even though the initial plan is like a very clever one it says oh yeah we're going to take over an empire one last heist and that'll be our retirement plan and they do that and then they're literally right well we're don't want to retire just let let's keep going <laughs> and this transfers over into like the last hero which i really wish had been in a longer book actually rather than a big picture book <laughs> it's uh so interesting but um yeah it's uh i don't think I, i'm trying to think is there much more uh is there anything else that's that hints at the idea of legacy uh like i suppose there is a little bit of a in for rincewind himself in the idea that like he doesn't like the there's that moment where he has to take off his hat mm-hmm. and he has a little uh, kind of inner monologue about, well, if I'm not a wizard, like, what am I? You know, it's like, I've, even though he's a terrible, terrible wizard, it's what he relates yeah. to. So, you know, he feel, he'd feel a bit, like, lost and directionless if he didn't have this one thing to hold on to. And, and, like, I don't think he ever says, like, I want to be, like, remembered as a wizard or anything like that because, you know, he has such good survival instincts. He always just wants to be yeah. known as um, a wizard. I, I think that the bit where it shows that Rincewind is at the end when Two Flowers talking to him and saying, oh, you know, like now Collins won the Empire. He's thinking of starting up a university. And I'm like, you are Chancellor. And Rincewind's panicking because he's thinking something's going to go wrong. Yeah. It's all going to be right. Uh, and, you know, like it's funny because you just have his like uh, pessimism shining through in the face of what just seems like this wonderful perfect situation but it's also as if like Rincewind's character who never thinks about legacy or the future because he's always too busy just trying to stay alive yeah, yeah. so when he's confronted with this idea of oh this is what you'll do now this you will you know you'll run this university and you'll be able to make your mark and you know do things your own way and he he can he can barely comprehend it at all you yeah know? yeah <laughs> uh, because like all he's used to is just uh, just hanging on by the skin of his teeth, <laughs> absolutely, uh, yeah. by his fingernails for for so long. <laughs> and actually, that's one one bit that I really like the line uh, near the start, where I think it's when he's uh, back in Unseen University, just after being transported there from the island, and uh, he's talking about like how he didn't know what to be if he wasn't a wizard. If he was turned away from being a wizard, he wouldn't know what to do with himself. And uh, I love the fact that he says like. Uh, I'm not much of a wizard, but like, you know, zero isn't much of a number, but it kind of brings the whole thing yeah, down if yeah. uh, you don't have it. So he kind of views himself as like the least wizard wizard there is, but like in a, some way kind of essentially has to be there, mm-hmm. you know, which uh, it's a very nice way of summing up his entire character. He's a wizard, but that's just because who he is. It's not because of what he does in any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember when we done a, when he's helping Rose in sorcery, I felt a bit dubious of his attachment to wizardry at that point because it came after like Fantastic Color Magic where he seems a bit kind of sceptical of the whole thing. He's, you know, always thought there would be a better way to do things than magic. And then suddenly in Sorcery, he's has this huge reverence for the art chancellor's hat and so on. But like, Pratchett just seems to have, whether it's consistent, he's stuck with this idea of not Rincewind being a wizard's all he's got even if he's a bad one and yeah he does come out with some really mm. uh, lovely top rocking you know <laughs> ways of how you know how he uh, reconciles his identity as a wizard with his incompetence as a yeah. wizard <laughs> actually I'm just thinking now one thing that kind of ties a lot of these themes together now that we're talking about this is the whole idea of how people deal with the concept of change and like yeah. how like you know they approach like because you know every almost every character in this has to deal with that like um uh, like even Hong himself like he's 
bored with the way like the empire is being run so he longs for like the change of Ankh-Morpork uh, Rincewind's the polar opposite like he's literally doing all this just so he can stay a wizard as he is and uh, Cohen and the Horde are kind of dealing with the idea of becoming civilised whereas mm-hmm. they can't obviously reconcile with that um, but you do get like other people who are kind of approaching it in a slightly more um, modern manner obviously you have the wizards and dealing with Hex they're kind of uh, you know fearful of it a little bit but you know they are slowly accepting it and I do really think that's a big uh, Y2K inspired kind of thing and uh, was there someone else I think there was someone else I had in my head who was even just the, the whole idea of the revolution you know and the culture being different etc etc it's it's interesting that like it's something that most of the characters deal with quite badly I don't think anybody really accepts the idea of change like even uh, yeah. I think is it no I don't think anybody actually ad- adopts it at all so it's in a way in some ways uh, all these characters are written as quite backwards because they simply can't conceive the idea of living their lives in any other way than the way they've always done the only like difference and the only reason we know that it's different is because we know we've read the later books is Hex and the example of how down the line because I think it's quite uh, they're quite fearful of it at this stage but as they go along Hex just becomes part of the scenery mm-hmm. and there's no kind of like there's one very dark uh, moment where I think it's Big Mad Adrian who used to be Big Mad Drongo is um, he's staying in uh, oh he's in the high energy magic building yeah. and uh, Hex gave him an answer to a question that he hadn't asked yet yeah. and it's, it's actually it's quite sinister like it does make it sound like Hex is going to be almost like like Hal I was just thinking, like, you know, uh, Terminator 2. Well, either one. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, like, it's going to be the start of this terrible, terrible thing. But it just peters out, which is an interesting reflection of, like, real life in that way. That we were just kind of, like, we accepted it. Uh, so, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And actually, speaking of the topic of later books, um, this is just a small thing. But uh, do you notice how they... Rincewind notices the moving... Or, not the moving... The paper money in... Uh, yeah, the, yeah. Um, what was this? Uh, what was the name of the your man who had it? The Dibbler prototype oh, guy. Um, disembowel myself. Honorably, Dibbler. <laughs> I think yeah. it was. Yeah, but yeah, it's like interesting that was there. But it's you kind of feel like it's emphasized just a little bit too much that you're kind of thinking Terry Pratchett's interested in this now. He's never been introduced before, but it comes so much later mm-hmm. down the line that he actually makes a book about it. So I love that. And this is one thing of my favorite things about doing this is that once we've you've read all the books already. So going back, you can see the seeds being planted yeah. for later books as you go along. It's like, this is great. <laughs> yeah, where you just think, oh, that is an interesting idea. I think mm. people get used to it. Like, we're on the other. Yeah. Mm. What I haven't talked about is the uh, Two-Flower and the uh, reunion with Rinsen and Two-Flower. I do think it's handled very well, I have to say. Yeah, that's lovely. I got such a, like, <laughs> you know, it's weird. I got this pang of nostalgia for mm. the first two books and... It felt like meeting up with an old friend, yeah. seeing the two of them together again. Um, and it's great that, um, as you said, I love the scene where Rincewind realizes that it's Two Flower who's writing it, <laughs> and is uh, I think Two Flower has a line in the book that says like people can walk down the street with no fear of anything happening to you, and like Rincewind's just there in this like restaurant or bar tavern screaming at the book. That's because it's happening to me, you two four eyed twat. It's just like that's fantastic. I love that. But even like the actual reunion where they're in two separate cells is a very, very touching moment. Just like with the moment where they're like, Rincewind? Two flowers? Yeah. Like, it's just, it's it's a particularly well done scene that I'm like, I, 
he's playing up to what people want and doing it very, very well. And yeah. I really like it. And I also find it interesting that... Um, well, one thing I find interesting... Two things I find interesting. First of all is the fact that Rincewind has this odd... Uh, obsession with uh, potatoes that is basically supposed to be sex which bizarre as that is <laughs> it's just an odd little thing to have in there and it's like, I don't know how much we can read into it but the fact that he has some kind of uh, mild crush on Two Flowers' daughter no Lotus Blossom yeah, yeah which is it's interesting um, I quite like the fact that it doesn't go anywhere and it isn't dwelt upon but I think it's a very nice little touch Mm-hmm. that um, he's just well it's a nice touch but and it's the fact that he like he likes her but more in kind of a I, I don't know how to describe it. it's, it's it's like a complex thing because there's times where like he's shouting at her for like you know the whole uh, her naive like nature mm-hmm. and then he feels bad immediately afterwards where he looks at her and she's kind of like a puppy uh, but when he meets her first like it's very obvious that like he's attracted to her because of the whole you know, she reminded me vaguely of potatoes and yeah. something that he'd need to uh, have uh, rethink later on. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. Like, I, li- I like that it's not dwelt upon too much, but it's there. It's just like a nice bit of characterization. I think it it's in almost all of the books, isn't it? Uh, well, not not all the books, but in Sorcery when he meets Cohen. Conina, yeah. Yeah, and he, I think he has a bit of a crush on her as well. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think it's much more pronounced in Sorcery. I think it's some better here where you can see like he finds her attractive but it's not so it's not so lent upon that you expect something to yeah. happen or something to be done about it's it. It's just know? like it's just a nice bit of characterization that shows like he's you know he's human and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um but I, yeah. I I loved a bit where um uh he he realizes they're two flowers daughters and uh, I think it's a bit cheeky but uh the the, the kind of essentially nod to the reader Pratchett has that you're thinking hang on Two Flower Two Flower never said he had kids mm. like, he wouldn't definitely said he had kids and he's like oh, I'm sure I mentioned it you know <laughs> um, and that's Pratchett saying it's like yeah don't worry you know like okay, yeah I'm, I'm re I'm kind of like I'm, I'm making this up from like he obviously didn't have a he didn't plan that he had daughters yeah, yeah. when he wrote the character initially so Rince would keep saying no you, you like you didn't tell me you had kids and he's like oh I'm sure I mentioned it yeah. like I think that's that's funny and you know uh, I'm not so much of a continuity there that like it annoys me actually tickles me a bit but the bit when uh, he realises that Lotus Blossom and Pretty Butterfly are two flowers daughters and he says there, there's a Mrs. Two Flower is there and he, he says like oh not anymore and Rincewind's like oh I'm sorry and he just says I have two dutiful daughters and it's it's like uh it describes like his bright brittle smile um, mm. and it like Rincewind looked away looked at the ground because it was easier than looking at Two Flower yeah. um, and it's just so heartbreaking that you know your Two Flower is just this lovely you know, suicidally optimistic guy <laughs> and this moment where you get the like you know quite minimally done the like idea that there's he's probably carrying a lot of pain with him as well and he's never going to show it you yeah know? yeah <laughs> Rincewind has like no uh, way of dealing with it is like uh, yeah moving yeah it is alright yeah and it's, it, it is very well done it's the, it's one part of the book that I think is um, I, I don't think I'd change at all like, there's there's issues with many parts of this book now but the entire reunion with Two Flower basically anything that's like you know 
we're doing this for fun kind of thing is all yeah. quite flawless I'd almost say it's just that when it explores like the more complex issues it seems to stumble a little bit but um, yeah I don't think I'd change anything about the entire reunion with uh, Two Flower it's, it's not too heavily done either like it's not a case of the entire book is about like you know Rinsman and Two Flower getting back together because it's only it's well over at the halfway point I think oh, that yeah, they yeah. actually meet again and it's just kind of like this is a nice little thing and we're not going to dwell too much on it but we know you're going to enjoy this that kind of way mm-hmm. which is which is good I like I, that I love his confronting of Laura Hong too like I think that's such a mm. um, like I think it works so well because the book hasn't set up any sort of enmity between them or given any imprints like oh Two Flower has an axe to grind here um, and then his you know his sort of uh, Lord Hong's reaction to it is just that like he's like I don't know who you are who, yeah. like why, why are you bothered and Two Flower was just like um, he says he killed your mother and pretty butterfly says no his soldiers did he's like that's worse he doesn't, yeah, even, he know. doesn't even know and yeah. you as the reader didn't even know this was a thing as well so it, it, it you know it works uh, quite well that way just um, and then the fact that he ends up like well, when he says like you know like someone's got to stick up to him um, mm. and then Hong just ends up dying <laughs> through sheer dumb luck yeah. and two flowers just that like I told you he was the great wizard proudly about Rinsen he keeps saying stuff like this and so now he's going to do something very brave <laughs> yeah I do love the fact like it is one of the most appealing parts of Rinsen's character that like uh I think Ridicully just uh, spells it like best. He's like, oh yeah, trouble always followed him. And he's like, oh yeah, but he's, he's a survivor. He's always survived. Like he's, he gets by on so much just dumb luck. Like uh, even when um, they're asking him to blow a hole in the wall, it's like, oh, it just so <laughs> yeah. happens. Like there's a bomb underneath there. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> I also like it. Like it's like a, a throwback to um, Life Fantastic when he has a spell in his head and he, it briefly casts magic for him and mm. he's just so intoxicated with like power and doesn't know what to do that happens again yeah you know, here with the, the like bong that like surely if he thought about it rationally for a second he, he'd think uh, something's happened here this obviously wasn't me but like at, at the heart of him at the like because he loves the idea of being a wizard so much he just he, he like is- this is in his otherwise kind of like very rational, very cynical character. This is his one big romantic blind spot or any indication that he can do magic comes along. He's just way too eager to do it. He's like, oh, watch out. I'll blow you up. Like, I'll throw your legs to jelly. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is so good now, I have to say. Um, yeah, I think I think that's 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 all I really have on, on this one now. I can't think of anything else that... Uh, jumped out at me um, do you have anything else oh, one thing that like is really wonderful um, is I think like the, basically the end the climax with the the all of the um, Hong and the other families teaming up against the Horde and death being there with war and the motif of the, the oh, kind yeah. of Chekhov's gun of the weather butterfly that you know is a, something's going to happen and then Rincewind finding the original Red Army and the reveal mm. of what it actually is when they keep making these references to like the great wizard called Soldiers from the Earth yeah. um, and it, it being a terracotta army nod uh, and even a lovely bit when he sees um, the First Emperor's grave and it just simply says One Sun Mirror and he thinks that whoever made this you know 
like that's more momentous than putting that on any list of titles because he's assuming that everyone will know his name who sees it yeah um, and then the, the terracotta guys coming up the, all the efforts to spread the rumours to disconcert uh, Hong and the other oh that army. bit's excellent actually no, <laughs> no there's not 60 million man power goes there's just 7 old men oh really <laughs> yes but like too old to die <laughs> <laughs> and then he says they can walk through walls and you see when uh, when Cohen cuts through the paper in the oh, palace boy. and they're like oh you're walking through a wall you can't you can't go through there that's on the door and like, <laughs> this has become you know exaggerated into like them being some kind of ghost killers yeah uh, it is uh, all of that is is great two powers reference of like you know well only one thing is going to happen what well when seven old men ride out against seven hundred thousand troops only one thing can happen <laughs> they're going to win obviously <laughs> Um, um, and uh, yeah show us your best ninja <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying a bit of claws up and cutting the samurai's head oh like the, that finale with you know that big battle is just brilliant like it's genuinely epic and well set up yeah um, it's like and, and we, we talked about in soul music you said the the climax of it felt sort of bombastic and unearned like even though it's, it's epic it you know, I, I feel for all the flaws of this book, that finale definitely feels earned. Exactly. Yeah, I do think so. Because, like, this is the thing. Like like I said before, like, I do think as a romp, it works very well. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, you know, the more complex issues that it stumbles on. So I do think it's completely earned. And, like, I always remember looking for... Now, my part of it might be uh, Josh Kirby's, like, art, art style in the front mm-hmm. of the Interesting Times book. It's just very... It, like... It evokes that part of it, a part of the book, very, very well. So maybe that's why it's always in my head of what a great part it is. But it is really well written. There's, it's one of those ones where there's so many things going on that, like, you're just it, it. You feel you can feel the tempo like going up as you're going into. It. It's like all the lies that are spreading in the camp, the Terracotta army, yada yada yada. Yeah, it's an excellent. It is a particularly good ending to the book. And actually. I like how uh, it sets up the last continent as well, like in a very, very simple <laughs> yeah. one scene thing. In like, it's it's great. Like, um, you are the great bloke or something like yeah. that. Well, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I just love that the whole yeah. the boomerang thing. It's it is one of the most simplistic jokes, but it's it's just great. Like, I think that my favorite part of that is just when uh, the two Aboriginals are like looking at him, staring at him after he's like thrown the thing away. And then, like, they're looking behind his head and then they just start to grin really widely. And just that bit is really funny because you just know what's going to happen. <laughs> it's excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it sets that one up. I think, I think at that point he knows, Terry Pratchett knows that what he's doing. I think, other than The Last Hero, which is kind of a side novel, not really a full one, um, I think The Last Continent is the la- last um, Rinsman novel, isn't it? Yes. So I think... In my head, I mean, I, he, he comes, he's a later, like, he sort of settles down after that, and he's in Unseen University, so he appears in scenes with the faculty, like, he comes oh, up with yeah. Unseen Academicals and one or two others, but yeah, like, in terms of uh, a book where he's the main character. Yeah, and it's, um, I do, I think this is something that we, we discussed before, and I, it definitely feels this way now, is that Rincewind is the avatar for exploring the disc world and showing yeah. the different cultures, and... I do feel at the end of this one, there was definitely a point in his head where he's like, huh, now what other major countries or specifically continents, lands have I mentioned that I haven't explored? Oh, 4X, okay, the next book will be there. And it's just literally, we'll plant that there and that's something I'll come back mm-hmm. to now. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know, I mean, ultimately that's why 
what makes this so uneven is that you're like he's he's the protagonist for romps through pastiches of foreign countries and mm. this is partly that but it's also trying to do something much more ambitious and say a lot about aging and legacy and kind of um uh despotic empires and revolution and you know yeah. um which probably isn't the best vehicle for 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 exploring those issues probably not see this but, is why i always feel that like uh, granny weatherwax was just considering the entire segment of uh, Witches Abroad where they're just travelling through all these towns, I think that dealt with uh, the entire nature of experiencing other cultures and lands much, much better than yeah. anything did in this book. Well, I feel too, that one like that one isn't trying to... You know, while, which, which well, while, they're, while they're travelling, it isn't trying to say anything really serious about them. It's just like, it's just playing off the kind of clash of cultures between the witches and mm. whatever countries they're in. Whereas this... He's trying to do something. He's making a point about it, yeah, yeah. Um, And and, I mean, like, Weird or Witches Abroad makes perfect contrast to this because I I feel maybe we've been a bit glib when we've um, criticised the Cohen and the Horde ending up as rulers. We've said, like, oh, it's bad, it's problematic, but maybe some people will be listening and thinking, oh, why? What's so really bad about it? And I think, like, Witches Abroad sets it up nicely where Granny specifically is like, like, when they go in to intervene to Genoa, they're going in to try and, like, you know, set things right, and Granny has this personal stake that because you know Lilith's mm. there, and that's her sister, and Lilith's essentially doing the same thing. She's this like foreigner who's come in and taken over the city because she is convinced she knows what's right for them. Mm. Uh, and Granny isn't going in thinking, "Well, I'll take over and show them what's really right." And and she's also wary of uh, Mrs. Gogol doing Who, yeah, the same thing. It, she says, "Like, yeah, you know, she has that duel with her where she says, if I win, no magic ruling the city; they make their own decisions.'" Mm. Um, and uh, like this with the kind of here we have a like despotic empire that you know clearly isn't great we have a resistance to it that's well meaning but kind of slapdash and uh, you know and what's set up as the you know solution is these barbarians coming in and taking over because they're just like decent lads and yeah maybe they'll shake up a bit of the stagnancy but it feels as if like you know it, it it feels as if weird sisters say had granny and nanny and McGrath just invite some uh, when they had like the baron in charge of Lonker they were like oh we'll just invite some foreign country in to invade us because at least that'll be, that'll be better than yeah. you know like and, and then telling everyone no it's fine now that uh, you know we're still heel it owns us mm. um, because at least we don't have that, that baron in charge yes. uh, like this is essentially like uh, foreign power feels the wrong word because they're the seven outlaws but it's still like these lads are just coming in and taking over another country and we're we're sort of expected to think like oh that's probably good for the, those people in the yes, country yeah. and I know like our listeners you know where you might come from but like we come from a country that was ruled by a foreign power exactly so, yeah. so maybe we're particularly sensitive towards this like dubious of the idea that you know, you know we should like uh, like anything would be called a happy ending when it's when it uh, has people from another country coming in taking over one country for its own good you yeah know? Um, and, and, and teaching it like you know their ways which are which are better and, and the thing is why doesn't this book end with two flower ruling the Gaetian Empire, right? Think about it. Yeah. He's the... I was about to make the same point, like, well, a similar point that, like, why couldn't this simply be a book about Two Flower and, like, his, you mm-hmm. know, experience with it? Like, I mean, I don't think Two Flower is a, 
a character who could carry a book. No, no. But I do take, yeah, I think you're right that like it would make more sense yeah. for Two Flower to be the one to kind of, and like maybe, he, maybe we'll find out, like maybe, uh, I don't think they mentioned, see, the next time I think we hear about Cohen is the last hero and I don't think the Agatean Empire is mentioned there at all. If it is, we maybe we'll check it and find out. But yeah, I don't think it's said that like, oh, it was left in the hands of Two Flower because that does seem like the most obvious choice. Yeah, because he's just ridiculous enough that the end is really funny and it kind of it wouldn't seem as maybe if, if you put like Pretty Butterfly or like a council of the Red Army in charge, it would seem a bit too, I don't know, serious and didactic. Like, yeah, the revolution is won and it's straightforward. Like, you know, Pratchett's always going to go for something a little... Uh, stranger than that mm. so you have him but, and like he's from that country but he's also had the experience of outside so in the same way that Pyramids ends with Tracy ruling who Tepic has taken uh, outside of she's uh, the jelly babian um, but he's taken her outside and she's seen the rest of the world and she wants to kind of modernise and bring in plumbing um, and Small Gods ends with like a uh, brother essentially becoming the you know mm. the ruler he's he's from um and very attached to it and loves it very much but has also seen how you know like uh, how stuff's done in other countries too far feels like the perfect candidate yeah. for something similar here and like i was thinking this it's the same with um uh weird sisters like where barons he's like part someone who's intimately familiar with like the way uh you know royalty works and all that and because like he doesn't want the job that's what makes him a perfect yeah. fit and I feel like the same kind of like you know thought process could very easily be applied to Two Flower I imagine if someone thrust the job on him you know at best he'd be like oh well I don't know if I'll be very good but I'll do my best you know and it's like that sounds like a perfect fit right there it's yeah. it's an odd one um, but I suppose uh, I don't know maybe no it is an odd one because I was going to say like maybe it'd just be a better ending but I really think yeah, it just would be a better ending because it would make sense in terms of uh, the Silver Hordes arc as well because they just want to keep, you know, pillaging and doing whatever. Yeah, yeah, that, that's another thing. Like, even if you take away the aspect of them being, like, foreign conquerors, the book shows they're not going to be very good at ruling. Like, yeah, the, obviously. It, you have that clash between their barbarism and civilized civilization, and they ultimately seem to opt for barbarism. Like, I think Cohen says... We uh, we won it through we won the empire through civilization and now we're going to keep it through barbarism. Mm. But it's sort of like, well, what are they going to do when I have to rule it then? You know, like the, yeah, the, the, the book kind of shows us again, again, and again. And as I said, in some interesting but quite frustrating ways that they can't really be reconciled into this civilizing process. Yeah. So why are they why are they left in charge of it at the end? Why do they even want to be in and charge? He, of that's it the thing. And like even like I think Truckle like when he finds out that. Um, the entire idea is to stay in the Empire and, like, he's, like, furious. Yeah, yeah. And, like, the catharsis there is, like, well, we're going to have to fight this army. But, like, after it's fought and the battle's won, that doesn't change anything. It's like, okay, we're still staying here. Why is Truckle suddenly okay with it? Like, in fact, it's it's very critique. It makes it a red army of, like, what's your plan for when you yeah. when you get in power? Like, it isn't going to be as simplistic as the bad guys are out, so ergo, it, things are good now, you yeah, know? Yeah, it just paints it in very broad strokes as if to say, like, well, listen, it's all going to work out fine. Like, it, you can tell just from the way it's written, like, it's not going to... If you think past the words, the end, you know it's not going to work out but it doesn't want you to think that yeah. far. It just says, like, just just trust me, it's grand, it's fine. So, yeah, it's it would have been a much better ending, I think, had Two Flower there, which is a shame because right up to that point is excellent. I was saying, like, the, the entire battle and all that, but, yeah, it's mm-hmm. a frustratingly 
off-putting ending. So, um, but in terms of like you know symbolically what it means and narratively when you look at it, yeah. so it's it's an odd one. Yeah. So I suppose we'll just uh, we'll, we'll rank it now unless uh, unless you. Uh, no, to, I think I, I I forgot to write down some of my favorite lines, but um, there's there's definitely a few in there. That yeah, I mean, is. like we've kind of got into a lot of the heavy duty theme stuff, but uh, if, if we haven't gotten across, this is an incredibly funny book. <laughs> so it, it is a very yeah. very funny one, and I I do I think my favorite well line or whatever is the constant uh, referring joke to uh, potatoes and women and like I just. It's just it's so bizarre. It doesn't really make sense. That that's what makes it so funny. I think. Um, let's see. I love, I love the part where Cully is trying to get the uh, like fiddling around with the barking dog cannon. He's like, ah, oh, there's some kind of a ball thing in here. <laughs> and Ponder is quickly realizing this is the kind of exciting. Our shots are. Oh no, my finger is stuck. <laughs> and I love actually. There's a bit of string set on fire. What's that? my favourite part about that is the fact that like you're fully expecting like the joke to be is like oh god it exploded but the fact that it's just very simply could you uh, put out that fuse yes no problem and that's it like <laughs> yeah. you know which is what makes it so good uh, so anyway so uh, let's have a look at this uh, list then anyway so for anyone listening for the first time we build up uh, we're building up a ranking of uh, the best Discworld books in the world ever i.e. <laughs> uh, our, our favourite ones as we go along so uh, the, we each book we get to, we fit it into some place on the list. At the moment, it's well, this is the seventeenth book we've addressed, so our list is sixteen books long, with Eric propping up at the bottom and Lords and Ladies holding up the top. So I'm looking at like the marker for Rincewind books right now is pretty low. It's uh, Life Fantastic is the highest Rincewind one we've got in eleventh. Um, is I, this better or worse than Life Fantastic for you? I, I would. I think it's better. Like there's more issues with it, but like it's more ambitious and I think it's funnier. So I think I'd yeah. probably rate it higher anyway. Um, so then, so higher than Life Fantastic, but just well, Life Fantastic is Weird Sisters. Is it better which, or worse than Weird Sisters? Again, see now, Weird Sisters is one. I I have such a soft spot for the witches like uh, mm-hmm. series, and my gut instinct is that it's not. But the thing is, I didn't read it with you guys, so I can't remember it as well. Um, I feel like if I remember rightly, there are some issues with Weird Sisters. Like I think it's from what I remember, it's a somewhat simplistic book, even if it is very enjoyable. Um, but I, would you want to weigh in um, on that one? Yeah, I, I, no, I'd agree with you. To be honest, I think like this beats out Life Fantastic for even if it it fails in some ways, it's much more ambitious and and the, like highs, the epicness and the, the laughs are are better. Um, so like when I when I weigh it up against Weird Sisters, maybe the only thing it has against Weird uh, or ahead of Weird Sisters is maybe it's ambition. I suppose funny and the ambition, but like ultimately I feel like Weird Sister succeeds in what it tries to do much better than uh, this Interesting some, Times does this is and, and maybe you to. could say the same about Life Fantastic but I, I still feel like Weird Sister is trying to do more than uh, Life Fantastic maybe less than Interesting Times but for mm. me it's like I think Weird Sisters is tighter it's more satisfying it's a um, very very tight story yeah, very so, well structured so. so I'd put Weird Sisters out of it I'd put this at the new number 11 above Life Fantastic and below Weird Sisters I think I'd agree with you yeah yeah. so so I think we'll put, we'll put that there so for yeah. new yeah. number 11 uh, is you now Interesting Times it's kind of sad actually that even though Rincewind is like the first character and I do have a little bit of a soft spot for him that's the highest he's gotten so far yeah. Um, I do feel like I remember the last continent. If the one thing I will say from what I remember is that I think it has a very good gut punch of an ending. 
that um but I'm not going to spoil it if you can't remember I just think it's very very good I liked all the uh timey-wimey shenanigans in it and I remember it being really funny as well yeah but uh yeah we'll see I think it's kind of ironic but it's just below Weird Sisters because we were just making the contrast of like yeah. one of the reasons Weird Sisters is better because it might like it navigates that idea of like how do you get a bad ruler uh, you know or a bad regime out <laughs> yeah. of power without massive bloodshed or you know turning yeah. things up or just taking over yourself and being just as bad <laughs> Uh, so maybe so it it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, we it's weigh it up on that merit the fact that like their rulers are treated better in uh, Weird Sisters <laughs> than they are in interesting times but, so, I just remembered one last thing from uh, this book that I really enjoyed that we didn't talk about it was the fact that the, the luggage uh, becomes oh, a father yeah, yeah. <laughs> at one stage it goes off and uh, finds a mate uh, protects it I think from Something. Yeah, yeah, I like the idea that the uh, the female luggages are bigger as a species because women's luggage tend <laughs> to have more luggage. I do so, like that features like that. Um, um, I'm, and I don't know if you read this the same way as I did, but I found that like I wonder if the luggage the only reason that like it went out and did what came naturally in inverted commas um, is because that it had been to Angmorpork which is like a much more decrepit kind of location where that kind of shenanigans would go on much more often <laughs> whereas the Agatean Empire is like a much more formal kind of like arranged marriage sort of like uh, yeah, well, I, I don't know I mean maybe these luggages in the Agatean Empire will have to mate at uh you know, some stage. Yeah, maybe, maybe it is just a case put. of this is the first other luggage I've seen like since I've gotten <laughs> yeah. here. So why not? It's it's, it's kind of like a, there's a bit of a contrast between um, the luggage getting to the Agatean Empire and suddenly finding other luggages with Rincewind on the island at the start and suddenly finding like uh, the women. Yeah. And unfortunately, whereas the luggage gets his. Uh, <laughs> Gets his very much. <laughs> yeah. uh, Rincewind does not get his potato. The luggage so is to speak. a lot more sexually straightforward than Rincewind. Easier to please. Um, um, potatoes aren't short supply in the in the Indian Empire. <laughs> but yeah, okay, so we will leave it there. Interesting times, new number 11. Um, so thanks so much for listening. If you want to uh, get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. If you search for Radio Moorpork, you can... Um, ask us anything give us any feedback uh, just start chatting to us about this world we'd, we'd be happy uh, we'd be happy to hear from you you can email us if you want to get into real detail at radiomorepork at gmail.com um, and you can listen to us as you presumably are while you're listening to this but you can listen to us on uh, SoundCloud on Podcast Addict on iTunes and a range of um, streaming services uh, if you like us please leave us a review on one of those it will always uh, help get the word out um, about Radio Moorpork so yeah and our, and our website is radiomoorpork.wordpress.com where again you can find all the episodes and can also find the uh, the list in full which stands at 78 books at the moment so that being that uh, thanks very much for listening and we'll be back with Masquerade bye now